Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. And to be honest, I really do need your help to be able to keep this show going. To support the podcast's eight monthly episodes starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you're already a patron, I see you and I thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I want people to go out and find the thing they care about and fight for it. We all need advocates. People don't all have to love the glaciers, but they've got to love something and they need to be willing to fight for it. That was Dr. M. Jackson, a geographer, glaciologist, and a National Geographic Society explorer. She's also the author of the nonfiction books, The Secret Lives of Glaciers and While Glaciers Slept, Being Human in a Time of Climate Change. Stay tuned as we're about to explore the dangers in oversimplifying the story of glaciers, what the perception of sentience in our glaciers from Nordic indigenous communities can teach us about how to move forward to mend our collective relationship with nature and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. That's not an easy question to answer, uh, especially because so many of my colleagues at the geographic, other explorers, I talk with them and I ask them the same question. How did you get so inspired to do the work that you do? And so many of my colleagues, they get to say things like they always knew that they wanted to study this one thing, or they had this early childhood experience. My pathway wasn't as clear, it seems, as so many of my colleagues. I grew up with parents that were, I guess the best the best label would be, I grew up with parents uh, that were very much hippies, and I had free range. So I spent a lot of time outside playing. I grew up on a farm, and it wasn't that I was choosing to be in the environment. It was that the environment was my everyday experience, and I loved it. And what I much later have slowly come to realize is that growing up like that, and then later on kind of entering into the wider urban world, it never occurred to me to be a scientist. It never occurred to me to go out and save this thing that was pre-existing. That just wasn't in my world. And I can say when I was younger, it never occurred to me that I could be a scientist. I'd never met a scientist when I was younger. I'd never met a glaciologist. I'd never met a female scientist. Mm. The people that I met were teachers and firefighters, and that's what I thought my career path was going to be. And so only later when I hit my 20s, I started to realize, well, okay, this thing that I took advantage of when I was a kid, this growing up space, it isn't available for everybody. And it's something that feeds who I am and what I am. And it's something I need. So how do I make sure that for other people like me who also need it, we can ensure that that will still exist? And that kind of set me on my path uh, moving forward. I always loved glaciers. I always thought of them as this beautiful thing that I would see, whether it was out on Mount Rainier in Washington State or up in Alaska, as just part of the continuous background. But again, 
I didn't know what it meant to be a scientist to study that because I loved glaciers just like I loved forests and oceans and rivers. It was part of that whole surrounding tapestry that fed me, that made me feel alive. Mm -hmm. And pulling one thing out and suddenly becoming obsessed on it, that wasn't something that I knew I could do or that I should do. And actually today, that's something I fight very much against. I think we lose a lot of the complexity of our environment when we say, I'm only going to focus on this one thing to maybe the detriment of everything else that lives with it. Mm. So for me today to study a glacier, oftentimes I have to go east to go west. To study a glacier, I might have to look at everything else around it before I actually look at the ice itself, because that's Part of what I do is look at it in its entirety and its complexity. But that's just living. <laughs> I want to preface the rest of our conversation by hearing about your approach to glaciology, because the lens through which we've traditionally studied glaciers, the science has been examined in a way that may have limited our ability to fully and deeply understand glaciers. Can you speak to what our traditional approach to glaciology has been like and what we miss out from that? Yeah, so it's important to understand that for glaciology, this is, in respect to many of the sciences, still rather new. We were studying a lot of other environmental phenomenon for hundreds of years before we started to really focus in on glaciers. And so the history of studying glaciers and what would be a very traditional approach to studying ice would be to monitor, measure, and predict it. So you go out and you look at the ice and you see what's happening with the ice. You do a lot of measuring of the ice of various components. And then because of the conversation we have about increasing climatic changes, we do a lot of predicting. The ice is often a stand-in for what's happening in other places. So if we say all the ice is melting, we can look at other things in that system. So the traditional approach is to monitor, measure, and predict ice. And that, frankly creates incredibly good scientific data about glaciers. It's a really wonderful platform to stand on. But the work I do adds to that. It says, let's take that really good existing approach and expand it and diversify it and look at glaciers from a lot of different points of view. And so that's what my work really focuses on. How do we diversify this particular type of science. And one area that I'm pretty passionate about is calling attention to the gendered nature of glacier research. Uh, you look at the history of glaciology and you see a pretty significant lack of women, lack of diversity in the field. And this deeply impacts what knowledges can be produced. Mm. So I spend a lot of time trying to advocate not only for greater inclusivity of practices and knowledges within glaciology, what actually counts as glacier research, but also how do we how do we actually diversify what we're thinking about when we think about glaciers? It's just as important to look at the ice in front of you as it is to talk to the people who live with that ice, to look at all of the natural world surrounding that ice. Mm. Well, through this more traditional way of studying glaciers and perhaps an approach that lacked diversity within the field, the common narrative we hear often today that comes from that seems to be just about how global warming is leading our glaciers to melt, and that's bad, full stop. 
In your book, The Secret Lives of Glaciers, you illustrate so beautifully that there's so much more complexity that we have to unpack. And sticking to this dominant perspective alone can do us a disservice when trying to understand how we can best move forward to better protect our planet. I'm wondering, what did you learn that made you feel this need to go beyond that simplified viewpoint and feel like such a singular narrative can be limiting and problematic? That's a very huge question. Uh, <laughs> I think for me, so studying glaciers, particularly in Iceland and talking to people, my early work, I came with that bias. Glaciers are melting and this is bad. And I came with that, with that narrative. For a very long time, especially in the States, there's this idea that if only we could teach people about climatic changes, it's an issue of education. If we teach them, if we teach everybody, suddenly everyone will understand. And yet there's a high volume of education available in a lot of different areas. And still the climatic change conversation, the climate change conversation in the States is, is sticky. It's really, really difficult. So why is that? A lot of research that says different things, but bringing it back to what I do and the glaciers that I work with, I tend to think that it's a value-based issue. And here's exactly what I mean by that. If we say glacier change, glacier melt is bad, that is inherently a value-based claim. Glaciers are melting and that is bad, right there. And it's pretty simple. It's black and white, it doesn't allow for anything else. So working in Iceland, working with people who, who live with glaciers that are melting, they have a range of values applied to that experience of glacier change. So most of the glaciers in Iceland are melting at unprecedented rates. And the way that people experience that, some people say, well, what does this mean for our Icelandic identity? Can you still be Icelandic in Iceland if there is no ice? So that's one value, the issue of what's, who, who are you and, and what's going to happen to you if the ice melts? But another one is you talk to a lot of older Icelanders and they say, well, for the first time in my life on the south coast of Iceland, I feel safe because they have grown up with these stories of these glaciers releasing floods and surging forward and destroying farms and landscapes for hundreds of years before. So they say it's actually good that the ice is melting in this particular place because they feel safe for the very first time. Mm. And there's, I can keep going with many of these examples, but the important thing is, is that the phenomena glacier melt is happening, but people read all these different values into them. It's not just glaciers are melting. It's bad. Instead, they have all these experiences, all these values that make them understand glacier change differently. And why that's so critical to understand. Jump to the states. What happens if somebody has a garden that comes in maybe a month earlier because the temperatures have increased? Or they in their backyard, they've got new birds that are really pretty. The way they're going to understand climatic changes might be a little bit different than some other people. They might be seeing some of the short-term positive benefits. And those are just as important to talk about as the negative aspects. Those are just as important to talk about as long-term advantages and disadvantages of climatic changes. We need to be talking about all of those valuations because regardless of where they are, they're still how people experience something. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to be having a meaningful and inclusive and diverse conversation about how we experience and respond to climatic changes, we have to open that up to people who might have a different view that might not just be climatic changes are bad, 
That's the value full stop. That might be accurate to that person, but we need to look at that whole picture. We need people with all their different viewpoints to say, this is what I'm experiencing. This is the values I bring to it. And this is what I want us to, how I want us to move forward. That's a real conversation that actually is going to have us come together and make change. I definitely think, especially when we want to prove our points that we need greater urgency to address climate change now, it's easy for us to just cherry pick all the ways in which we've heard people are suffering from climate change without even acknowledging that, yes, as you said, some people's livelihoods may have improved or become more safe and secure in this short term. And some people hearing about these stories of people's lives having improved from climate change They may be like, so what, does this mean that it's okay for us to continue what we've been doing because climate change is okay? Or how can recognizing that people are experiencing climate change in different ways, some in tragic ways, some in positive ways in the short term, how can understanding this complexity help us to better equip ourselves going forward and better understand what we need to turn things around? Yeah. So how do we understand the complexity of climate change and the different valuations of it? You know, there are some days where I'm having a very, very bad day and I wake up and I'm just miserable that day. But I have to remember that maybe tomorrow I'm not going to be as miserable. And there are some days when I wake up and I'm having the very best day and everything's working. And I have to remind myself that might not be how it is the next day. So I need to be responding accurately to those different days that I have. And if you jump that into a climate change conversation, time and scale really, really matter here. Some people might be having short-term positive benefits of some particular phenomenon related to climate change. That might be they're enjoying better weather or they're having warmer temperatures or their gardens come in or they've got a better bird in their backyard. They might be having some short-term impact that might change further down the road. That phenomenon, the experience might turn negative at some point. The important thing to realize is that whatever they're experiencing is going to change. Mm. That is the root of climatic changes. It's very, very hard to predict. It's really, really dynamic. And so if we want to say, okay, people everywhere, how do we work together? We need to learn how to work together and be quick to respond to a lot of changes all at once that are happening at different scales and different times to people all over with different geographies and different values. This is really, really complex. So we just need to start working on and including into a conversation about climate change the sheer complexity of those changes. If someone's having better weather, that is not full stop end. That's just that one moment. That's that one good day you're having because tomorrow might be a worse day. You don't know. It's a really hard thing to predict. Well, to add to this complexity and to take it another step deeper, your book title, The Secret Lives of Glaciers, implies in a sense that our glaciers are alive in their own way. In chapter six, you say substantial research reports that many peoples from indigenous, first nations or aboriginal people's communities do have animistic understandings of their environments. In the north, natural elements such as glaciers, mountains, seas, and animals are seen as sentient beings and having agency, emotions, and 
interest in human affairs. And later you say, we're now starting to get close to seeing why perspectives of sentience are quite important today to consider. It is not the perception alone, it is also what the perception implies, entails. It is what comes with that perspective, end quote. Why is it important yeah. for us to acknowledge and learn from this viewpoint, which people may easily dismiss in the Western world? And what can this perspective teach us? So what can looking at the, the potential of sentience, the perspective of sentience in the living world teach us? I am absolutely not interested in having a conversation about whether we can prove or disprove sentience, whether a glacier is alive or not alive. That is really just not an interesting conversation for me to have. Uh, and people always want to have that conversation with me. I'm just <laughs> interested because to me, what's fascinating is what the perception of sentience implies. If people, if certain people, we don't need everybody, but if somebody thinks that a glacier is alive, that is going to change their circle of care. That is going to change how they perceive that glacier, that tree, that forest, that river, that anything in our natural world. And they're going to care for it in a different way than if they did not think it was alive. Mm -hmm. And the range and the details and the howness of, of how that that thing is alive. Again, I'm not quite interested in it. It's just, are you going to treat it differently? And oftentimes when someone thinks something is alive to some degree, they treat it differently. And for a long time, even all the way up to today, people often perceive, and I'm speaking very broadly when I say people, it's really common to hear the narrative that glaciers are these things that are out away. They're cold, they're frigid. We see a lot of headlines that say glaciers are melting. We see a lot of headlines that say the glaciers are toast or they're going away. And it's almost as if we don't care. Right now on the trajectory that we're, we're creating, our ice is melting at unprecedented rates. There's a high likelihood in the future that we're going to be living in a world without ice. That's not a future I want to get into. So how do we care about our ice? How do we take care of it? How do we, how do we fight for it? I'm interested in those conversations. And I find that when people have some perception of sentience, some perception of aliveness in the ice, it changes how they care for it. It changes what future they want for it. It changes responsibility. And that's where it gets interesting. Do you think there's a way for us to feel this greater sense of responsibility, whether or not people share the same view of sentience of our whole natural ecosystems? Because it seems like right now what is broken is our relationship with nature and our inability to truly honor nature within our human civilization and our ways of lifestyles. For the people that you've come to know, when they take on this view that glaciers are sentient, that changes their relationship with them and leads them to care more deeply for nature. So I'm wondering how we can inspire this same deep and intimate sense of care, even if people did not share these, these ideologies. I think it honestly comes back down to advocacy. And what I mean specifically by that is I am one of the world's foremost glacier nerds. I love glaciers. <laughs> I love them very much. And I spend, I've dedicated my life to them. And what I'm aware of is I've dedicated my life to understanding and fighting for glaciers, even though the results I'm hoping for, that our ice has the capacity to grow back to some degree if we get our global temperatures down, is not a result I'm going to see in my lifetime. But I am fighting for that. I'm an advocate for that. 
I don't think that every person on this planet, even though I dream about it, needs to be an advocate for glaciers. But I do think they need to be an advocate for something. I want people to go into their own backyards and look around. And if they find a a local park that they care about, if they find a type of tree, a bug, if they find something, clouds, something in our natural world that they get inspired, like I'm inspired by ice, they become that thing's advocate. Think of the number of people on this planet, the billions of people on this planet, and if every one of them was advocating for some aspect of our natural world, we would be building a tapestry of advocacy. We would be building a tapestry of a better world that we all want to protect. Because if somebody else really cares about lichens and moss, at some point they're going to have a conversation with me about glaciers, and we're going to be able to come together. So the short answer for your question is, how do we get people to care? I want people to go out and find the thing they care about and fight for it. We all need advocates. People don't all have to love the glaciers, but they've got to love something and they need to be willing to fight for it. Mm. Your entire book is more narrative, full of stories of relationships, of cultural history and deep connections with nature, as opposed to being more technical or academic. And all of what we just discussed, our past approach to hard science, leaving out the human element within and related to that. Do you think all of this is part of the reason why we've known the physical science of climate change for decades and yet haven't been able to meaningfully shift our behaviors and cultures in response to the changes that we're seeing? Because perhaps when we understand how people interact with nature and understand that relationship, we can better contextualize what the data and what the hard numbers actually mean. I think sometimes we're a little bit at war with ourselves about how we present data and to whom. There can be a bit of an anti-intellectualism that is at play that I think is a bit more of a cerebral conversation than it, than it actually plays out uh, in real life. I think at times when we present data, what that really means is how do we present numbers without story? Or if you're going to add story, we see a lot of physical science presented in what I often just identify as the social science sandwich. So you'll see a lot of physical science data presented, and usually at the conclusion and in the introduction, there's going to be some kind of social data that says something. But the real meat of whatever is getting presented is the the interior in an academic article that's that physical science. And I think that that's really good for a really specific set of people. But if I want people everywhere to understand and care about what I care about glaciers, then I need to really kind of pick up on the story side of things. And why I think that's important is I have spent so much time in rooms telling people that X Glacier has recessed X amount and I've watched their eyes glaze over. But if I tell them about this glacier, Breath America Yogurt, and I tell them how this glacier had a forest growing in front of it, And when Iceland was first settled well over a thousand years ago, that glacier was way up valley. And those settlers, they moved into that forest and they lived there for hundreds of years and they raised families and farms and futures all the way up until the little ice age started kicking in. And then that glacier up valley, Bredemergiogl, started to respond to that ice age, started to grow bigger and started to surge down that valley and destroy that forest 
and those farms and those families and those futures and those people had to move away. I start telling those stories. Suddenly we want to know what happened. Mm. And so for me, I have all of the data, but I want to be able to tell it in a way that people care about. So for instance, my first book uh, that I wrote, While Glaciers Slept, that's a book that's more of a memoir. That's stories of glaciers, but funneled through my own life experiences. This book that just came out about Iceland, The Secret Lives of Glaciers, that's the stories of people living with glaciers. I've just completed a draft of a novel, um, Ice to Water. It's a novel. It's fiction. It has all of the real science stuff in it, but it's a novel because I think we're going to be so much more willing to approach some of these scientific topics if we have good story. There's a lot of ways to translate science to make it approachable. But for me, I focus a lot on story. How do we have beautiful story that also shares all this data so that people aren't responsible for remembering and holding on to all this met- all these metrics? Instead, they can carry themselves into a story. They can learn. And more importantly, they can repeat those stories to others later. So it's definitely not, of course, to dismiss the importance of the scientific method and everything that we do learn from the hard sciences, but to to remember that people are really drawn to storytelling and we, we're moved and we're touched and we're more engaged when we listen to how stories play out as opposed to just numbers. Very much so. And I think that the scientific method is just one form, one particular form of data gathering in all the different ways that we we gather data. And then the scientific method is actually one particular form of storytelling that for some people is right up their alley. But there are so many different types of storytelling. So if we spend, if we waste our precious time trying to subsume one form of storytelling, one form of knowledge over another, we're actually just wasting Wasting our time. I'm not interested in trying to figure out if the scientific method is better than, uh, I don't know, fiction writing. Not interested. <laughs> uh, what I am interested in is in saying, okay, let's put all of this out here. So I've got, I've got all this great data. I'm going to put it out there as a memoir. I'm going to put it out there as scientific nonfiction. I'm going to put it out there as a novel because each one of those are very different f- presentations of data and those are going to speak to different people. Because, of course, our audiences are diverse. They're just as diverse as the glaciers I work on. And the important thing here is we're not looking to simplify our data. What we're doing is we're presenting it differently. It is the same data, Mm. but it's getting presented differently. So with all the depth and breadth of knowledge you've come to learn about our glaciers, if we were to examine humanity through the lenses of our glaciers and how they've witnessed the evolution of our shifting cultures and interactions with ice, what do you think our glaciers would want to tell us about the most important lessons that we have to learn to navigate our ecological crises of today? Hmm. I think what glaciers are often teaching me is is to think about time differently. So much of the ice that I work with, you know, you might have a certain idea that you have to get X thing accomplished in X amount of time, and then you go to the ice and the glacier has an entirely different view of how long it's going to take you to do something. Or a glacier presents a piece of tree that's 3,000 years old that's been held for that long. 
or for, I'm about to go up to the Aleutians. I'm going to be sailing down from Nome over the Bering Sea down to the Aleutians. And what I keep thinking about is the whole Bering Sea, that continental shelf area. During our last ice age, that was the Bering Land Bridge because glaciers held so much of our world's water budget held up in snow in glacier ice. And so our world was much drier and our seas were about 412 feet shallower, lower than they are today, which made the Bering Land Bridge between Siberia and Alaska. These things about glaciers, they make us see time differently. What was just yesterday to a glacier was our last ice age. What our future looks like. I go back to glaciers every year and they've changed so dramatically year to year to year in just the last decade. And that is a quickness that I don't really match with glaciers because I understand glacier time to be much longer. And so what I keep thinking about is what would a glacier teach us? I think a glacier would teach us about the plasticity of time and how what we think of time, some moments are so slow and some moments are so fast, our own lifetimes. The same is for a glacier. And some things that should be slow are actually very fast. And if we can think about that and think about time just a little bit differently, I think we might start redefining how we approach what's happening today. And to be very specific about what I mean by that, you know, glaciers are melting across this planet and they're melting at unprecedented rates. The biggest predator for glaciers is increasing global temperatures, both terrestrial temperatures, uh, marine uh, temperatures, atmospheric temperatures across the board, our temperatures are increasing and that has a negative effect on glaciers. If we can get our temperatures down, our glaciers can grow back. All the data tells us this, we see this. So I'm fighting for that outcome. But even if today, right now, we get our temperatures down to an optimal point, the glaciers are going to have to respond and the way and the length of time they take to respond is not in my lifetime. Mm. I'm fighting for something that I am never going to see the positive results of and highly likely my kids are not going to see the positive results of. But I am still getting out of bed every day. I am still in this fight. I am in this for the long fight. And that is something that I'm learning from ICE. Because so many of the things we're fighting for, we want the results of now. We want the results of in exactly one week. What happens if what we're fighting for, the various campaigns, the various things, if we are in this for our lives, if we are in this for the whole long fight, with the recognition that some of these things we're not going to see in our lifetimes. That's actually, if you start thinking about it, it's pretty scary. But it's also pretty encouraging and pretty inspiring. And this is what I'm learning from ICE. And this is something I think ICE is teaching me, this issue of how I renegotiate time. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to let you know that I just went live with my second podcast. It's called The Kamea Shane Show, and it's an offshoot of Green Dreamer, so I'll be exploring similar themes and topics in shorter episodes, and they'll mostly be solo, so just you and me. 
I didn't really plan much before starting it, and that's kind of the point, I guess. It's going to be more open-ended, informal, and casual, and I would love to get your feedback as well on what topics you'd like me to explore, any questions you have for potential Q&A episodes, and etc. It would make me so happy to have you there as well, so please come on over to kameashane.com slash subscribe to get all the links you need to find the podcast, or you can also just search for The Kamea Shane Show. And to get my episodes and personal newsletter sent to your inbox, you can sign up at kameashane.com slash newsletter. I hope to catch you there, but for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Mm. I think a book that has been very, very profound for me it's probably a book written in 1984. It's called The Bone People by Carrie Hume. And it's just this book that I take with me, I carry with me. It's written so beautifully. It is very sad and it is very inspiring. And I take it with me everywhere and I read it over and over again. It's just, it's a pretty incredible uh, story. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? To stay inspired and to stay positive. Every morning, I tell myself, it's possible. And then I keep going. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Mm, CrossFit. (laughs) (laughs) I am getting a lot more physically fit with CrossFit. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? I have just finished a draft of a new novel that is all about glaciers and all about love. And I think that when people read this fiction, this novel, they might might fall in love with a glacier. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? What makes me most hopeful is that everywhere I go, all across this planet, people are talking about climatic changes and they are talking about how to move forward. And those conversations are so different and the details are so different, but we are all talking about it. We're not alone. It's really, really dark right now. But we are not alone. And people are doing amazing work. And I think this is a really exciting time to be alive. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Em's work and to find more information on her books, While Glaciers Slept and the Secret Lives of Glaciers, you can head to www.drmjackson.com and you can also follow her on Instagram at mlejackson. I'll have all of this linked in the show notes as well and you can find all of that at greendreamer.com. Em, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your incredible wealth of wisdom on glaciers and everything that is interconnected to them. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? I think my final words of wisdom would be to keep going. Find what you love, advocate for it, and keep going. Don't give up yet. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. 
So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.